Testing, testing. Is this thing still on? Well, then let's release the rest of season one. Happy 2019. Testing Testing is brought to you by Epigrammer, an AI-powered grading tool. When I taught classics, grading was tough, so I co-founded Epigrammer to give my best feedback once and repurpose it everywhere. With this podcast, I hope you'll test some of your assumptions about what it means to get an education. How do you prove what you know? In 1714, the new year began in London with a controversy. The Royal Society, the oldest national scientific institution in the world, had just published an account of the book entitled Commercium Epistolicum. That account, written anonymously, set out to resolve a major disagreement in the academic community. Did Isaac Newton, or Gottfried Leibniz, discover calculus first? The Commercium Epistolicum, which contained a series of letters among leading mathematicians, had been published two years prior, and that book laid bare some of the evidence in favor of a timeline. But years later, it was revealed that the anonymous author was actually Isaac Newton. It is worth noting that Newton was a member of the Royal Society, and his account, unsurprisingly, was critical of Leibniz. Over 300 years later, most mathematicians credit Newton with discovering calculus first, but much of the notation that Leibniz used, the d over dx, for example, remains in use today. In order to understand how Newton knew he was first, though, it's worth noting how his account begins. Quinn? Several accounts having been published abroad of this commercium, all of them very imperfect, it has been thought to publish the account which follows. This commercium is composed of several ancient letters and papers, put together in order of time, and either copied or translated into Latin from such originals as are described in the title of every letter and paper. Well, first let's assume Newton has translated everything into Latin correctly. Which is a tall order, I assume? Leibniz was German and frequently wrote in French, so we are dealing with esoterica in at least four languages. Esoterica? That word derives from an ancient Greek word, meaning things belonging to an inner circle. In English, it refers to a set of ideas requiring a specialized knowledge. But you see, using that word is also part of the problem. Whenever our communication is unclear, it tends to lead to a misunderstanding, or at best, a partial misunderstanding of our message. Which I can assume is terrible for understanding partial differential equations. Now you're speaking my language. Alright, puns aside, numbers are pretty straightforward. I mean, most of the letters that Newton cites are dated, and since both men use Arabic numerals, can't we just see when equations with derivatives or integrals first appear? Sure, but that which is counted most easily doesn't necessarily count the most. For example, an important point of contention that Newton makes is Leibniz visited London in 1673 to meet with John Pell, a prominent British mathematician. There, Leibniz was accused of plagiarism on the grounds that his generative method for forming the terms of any continually increasing or decreasing series too closely resembled the work of another mathematician, whose work Leibniz had already seen. Today, many scholars have defended that appearance as coincidence, such as Rupert Hall, who formerly taught the history of science at Imperial College London, because, thankfully, Leibniz had his notes. You know, back when I was in school, I always thought it was a bit strange that teachers asked me to show my work, but it sounds like note-taking really saved Leibniz. And today, a teacher has even more ways to learn how and when their students learn something new by examining on-task behaviors, like note-taking. In fact, here are a few new things that I learned from an expert in learning science at the University of Pennsylvania. 
I must warn you, the audio for this interview is pretty bad. We tried to clean it up as much as we could, and we think that the quality of the content makes up for the quality of the audio. But don't worry, next week's audio is crystal clear. Please welcome to the show, Dr. Ryan Baker, director of the Penn Center for Learning Analytics. For this episode, Dr. Baker, we began by looking at data used in determining whether Newton or Leibniz discovered calculus first. But could you tell us what determinations of learning or learning analytics look like today? Sure. Um, There's an increasing amount of data about how learners learn from a variety of contexts. And that data typically is not formatted in kind of clean, easy to work with ways, but is um, you know kind of messy and it's got a lot of different types of information and it's a lot bigger than traditional data sets. Analytics is the uh, practice of trying to take large messy data and extract meaning from it, meaning that kind of generalizes across context and that we can trust. Um, and it's kind of a new set of methods for dealing with data that's just simply bigger and messier than the data that traditional methods were designed to handle. That makes sense. We identified how interpreting some data like personal communications was prone to error, so I wouldn't be surprised if end-of-year surveys or course evals were also problematic per se. But could you give a few examples of current projects which are incorporating richer sets of data in new ways? So we're trying to look at a lot of issues, but maybe one of the key themes to our center is trying to find out things that are happening right now in the learner's experience that are meaningfully predictive of where they're gonna be in the future. So for example, take a kid who is doing math homework online. Can we infer from their clicks, from their behaviors, from how they use the learning system, whether they're learning, how well they're learning, and what kind of engaged and disengaged behaviors they're showing, like getting careless when they think they know the answer. And then how do those behaviors connect to where the student will be several years from now. So for example, students who get careless in their middle school math work are, once you control for how much they know, less likely to go to college than students who get less careless, less likely to go to a selective college, and if they're getting careless in their math class, they're less likely to major in STEM careers, science, technology, engineering, and math, when they get to college. So can we figure out things now about the student that are kind of predictive about where they're going to be in the long term? And And ideally, things that are actionable, that we can pass to a teacher or a curriculum developer or a guidance counselor and say, if you do this, the student's results might be better. So to interrupt for a second, it seems like what Dr. Baker's saying is that there's evidence that the process in which students learn indicates their mastery of material and also potentially predicts future grades. Exactly. If I'm Leibniz in 1714, I'm really hoping that Thomas Bayes grows up fast because I could benefit from some Bayesian knowledge tracing. Well, since you're throwing out some big phrases, before we dive back into the interview, let's take a moment to define some terms. The first is BROMP, which we'll talk about in a minute. BROMP stands for the Baker-Rodrigo Okampah Monitoring Protocol, which is a protocol for quantitative field observations of student affect and behavior. The next term is blended learning environment, which refers to a learning environment that blends typical teaching strategies with technology. They include online digital media and traditional classrooms, so students in these environments should have typical teacher-student interactions as well as more control over their own personal learning. The last term is Bayesian knowledge tracing, which is just an algorithm used to determine a learner's mastery of a certain topic. Okay, back to the interview. When you are identifying someone's mastery of skills or predicting learning outcomes, are you using models like Bayesian knowledge tracing? We use a lot of different methods uh, to capture different constructs. 
Um, Bayesian knowledge tracing by itself is a method for tracking what a student knows, like what their skill is at math or any other domain. But um, we can use distillates of that model to help us, like you kind of thought, to infer carelessness because we can look for situations where the student really should be getting it right based on everything else we know about them. This is a problem they've done things like it seven times before, gotten it right a lot. And suddenly they answer really quickly and they get it wrong. So it's um, a combination of Bayesian knowledge tracing other information. Now, for some things, like whether a student is trying to game the system to trick the software without going on, we actually use models where we send human beings out to the classroom, have them watch kids, take notes on a handheld app, and then those uh, notes are synchronized with the log data. So we can then use what are called classification algorithms to develop a model that can recognize the behaviors that the human being is recognizing but from the students' interactions with the software rather than standing there and watching them. And that's the BROMP method? That's right. BROMP, uh, the Baker-Rodrigo-Okampah monitoring protocol, is our method for studying kids out in the field. And then we connect that with the log data to build, um, to build and learning analytics methods to build models of a kid's engagement. In terms of student engagement, what have been some major surprises from your research? Oh. We, we, we're always surprised by what we're finding. I mean, a couple of recent surprises that have really intrigued us, one of them is just how big the magnitude of effect of a student not taking their math homework seriously is. You know, we're seeing effects that, like, span more than a decade. Kids who are trying to get through that learning in middle school are having these long-term impacts. Another one, kind of outside the K-12 area, is looking at the career impact of your behaviors in a massive online open course. So, you know, these days millions of people take these massive online open courses, and there's a lot of evidence that if you don't participate actively in the course, you don't post in the forums, you're less likely to complete it. And so everyone's been very concerned about participation, but a lot of work to actually investigate who goes on to work in that field and to contribute productively to it. We found that forum lurkers, people who read a ton of stuff but don't actually contribute, do just as well in their long-term careers as people who are posting all the time. So that causes us to have to kind of rethink what we think about participation in online learning. Sometimes just being quiet and learning a lot is just as good as the people who are kind of always raising their virtual hands to talk. I feel as if that challenges the argument of the Royal Society and Newton, but to what extent is time on task a valid indicator of learning? There's a long history of people worrying about time on task. Are the kids on task? Are they, you know, goofing off? And our research in our lab has, we now have kind of a decade of experience in different learning environments to say that it seldom matters as much as you'd think. Like whether or not you're on task at all in most systems is not nearly as important as when you're on task, are you working hard and making a big effort? Mm -hmm. So are you taking it seriously or getting careless or gaming a system? Are you not just you know, working hard, but actually trying to figure out how to get the right answer by using the help systems effectively. Um, so we've kind of really refined, I think, the knowledge of what off-task behavior means. Now, there's one exception to that. We found in one learning system that was in, extremely engaging, a system called Reasoning Mind, used by about 100,000 kids a year in Texas, okay. that off-task behavior mattered more. And I think that's because Reasoning Mind is such an engaging system that students are off-task about a fifth as much as they are in other K-12 curricula. And so when off-task becomes very rare, the only kids who are off-task are the kids who are just totally disengaged with their learning. I think you had also mentioned that 
80% of studies involved some online component or blended learning environment. So considering Penn's other partners, does that seem to be a trend in monitoring and supporting learning outcomes? Oh, yeah. We are partnered with, you know, a lot of great companies, nonprofits, and uh, and university-based online learning environments. And great learning systems like Alex, Reasoning Mind, Assistments, Cognitive Tutor seem to be kind of over time expanding their reach. Um, and that's a good thing because, you know, some of these systems have quite a bit of evidence for their efficacy at improving student outcomes. Um, so I think that we're seeing more and more schools using these blended learning approaches that leverage the best of what human beings can do in their teachers at the same time as trying to support them better with technology. And uh, that these technologies, most of them, not all of them, most of them are realizing the value of learning analytics and trying to uh, use those technologies to make their system better still. Well, we're very interested in seeing how those technologies mature, and we're also very thankful for your insights today as a leader in the field of learning analytics. No problem at all. It was nice to talk to you, and I look forward to more discussions in the future. So, Mike, are you Team Leibniz or Team Newton? Honestly, I think I'm Team Anisi. Huh? Maria Gatana Anisi was born a few years after Newton's, an account of the book entitled Commercium Epistolicum was published, but she was also the first person to write a book on differential and integral calculus. In 1748, her analytical institutions for the use of Italian youth, published in Milan, introduced calculus to a wider audience. And she was pretty humble about it, too. In fact, even though she was the first woman appointed to a professorship in mathematics at a university, she gave up that position at the University of Bologna to devote herself to the poor. You mean to tell me you dislike esoterica? You know, when it comes to leading a good life, that kind of Greek isn't always integral. Nice. Now that sounds like a case against education. You know I discussed a classical education with Brian Kaplan, right? Tune in next week for part one of our series of correspondences on the economics of education. And to learn more about guests on Testing Testing, visit us at testingtesting.fm. There, you will find helpful links to episodes released each week on Apple Podcasts. Or to learn more about your hosts, take our personality quiz. If you would like to comment on an episode or correct the record in some way as well, write our team at writingwriting at testingtesting.fm. That first writing starts with an R. But for now, pencils down. I'll see you next week.